Now, coming out of communion, today what I want to do is I want to talk about the subject of suffering, struggles, setbacks. But at the end of my message this morning, I'm going to come back to the suffering of Jesus Christ. Suffering is something I've had some experience with. My father was an alcoholic. He died when I was 13. A year before, my father and my mother had divorced. It was a difficult, ugly family situation. As a matter of fact, my father was never there for me. One time, one time that I remember, we had a father-son outing. And he took me one sunny fall afternoon to a Notre Dame football game. But he almost got me killed because he was totally drunk as he drove. And we only stayed for a quarter because of his condition. When I was 19, I stepped out of the wild life I was living because I became convinced that Jesus was more than just a a religious prophet, a, a religious nice guy, but he was fully God. And that totally changed my life. And because my change was so radical, so dramatic, I almost immediately lost every single friend I had in our fraternity, about 120 guys. And they completely rejected me. Twelve years ago, my wife died of cancer. It was an aggressive, brutal cancer. It was a horrible way to die. Rhonda and I have married now. We are in a step, a blended family. And we have seven children. This past January, not even two months ago, I had cancer surgery. And so here I am today standing before you as a cancer survivor now myself. You see, whether it's a broken family, rejection, cancer, or a hundred other things, suffering is universal, and sometimes it's overwhelming. I think of a woman that went to talk to her husband's doctor because of her husband's health crisis. And she had a few minutes with the doctor, and the doctor said, you need to understand that your husband has a severe stress syndrome. And the next 10 months are going to be critical, and if you're not careful, he could die. So here's what you need to do. Here's what I would suggest, recommend for you. You need to cook your husband whatever he wants to eat. You cannot, you cannot share problems with him. You cannot share your problems with him. You need to serve him and make sure he is happy at all times because if you don't, you could kill him. The woman heard that, went home. Her husband immediately came up to her and said, well, what did the doctor say? And she replied, he said, you're going to (laughs) die. Overwhelmed, right? There's no way I I can handle this. 
So today, I want to look at what Christianity has to say about suffering. So we don't come unglued, so we aren't overwhelmed. Broken and grieving to be sure, hurting and bleeding, yes. But never to the point we can't breathe and we can't go on. So today, we are going to look at a little passage, actually just three verses in a little New Testament book called 1 Peter, and to see what God has to say in his word about suffering. But one of the things that's so very interesting about this series we're doing in 1 Peter is proportionally, 1 Peter has more to say about suffering than any other book in the Bible. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. In the next verse, he talks about the insults these readers were experiencing because of their stand for Christ. He continues, and let's pick it up in verse 19. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. I want to do two things. I want to talk about the nature of suffering and our response to suffering. So we're going to look at what suffering is. We're going to tease that out. And then how we might respond to suffering. So what is suffering? Well, in verse 12, uh, Peter tells, calls it a fiery ordeal, a fiery trial. Now, this is metaphor. Peter uses the same metaphor in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And what he's telling us is a, a trial is like a refiner's fire. Take gold. When gold is uh, discovered in the ground, it's normally surrounded by other minerals, other impurities. So how do you get the gold out? Well, that's a laborious, expensive process, starting with smashing the rocks. But ultimately, you're going to get to a point where the gold is superheated. And at that moment, the impurities, the other minerals that haven't already fallen away, completely fall away. You see, there's a a sense in which the fire tries to destroy the gold only to make it more pure and more beautiful. Because under normal temperatures, you can't sometimes distinguish gold from some of the surrounding uh, minerals. It's the fire that separates. It's a fire that divides. So Peter is saying what fire is to gold, trials are to your life, to your faith. So what does that mean? Well, that means two things. I want to make two applications relative to what suffering is, what Peter is saying here. And the first is this. Suffering exposes our hearts. It exposes the inadequacies of what we trust. Now let me explain. We all have a number of allegiances, right? Good, normal, healthy allegiances. We have allegiances to family. We have allegiances to friends. 
We have allegiances to our schools, to our jobs, to our teams, uh, to our pets, and to God if we believe in him. When I was growing up, I had no allegiance to God whatsoever. But I had a huge allegiance, as I should say, to my appearance, my performance, and having cool friends. Those allegiances absolutely dominated my life. You see, some of our allegiances are stronger than others. Uh, Take a family allegiance. And some of our allegiances are better than others. I have an allegiance, this is a confession to the Chicago Bears, that has caused me unbelievable pain over the last years. (laughs) So much pain. But here's the thing about our allegiances. We're usually not aware of them or the extent of them until they're threatened. They're threatened. You see, when your circumstances are great or your circumstances are good and life is humming along, uh, the temperature is normal. And you don't know all the things that your heart is clinging to. You just don't. You know, you're just enjoying life. But man, when the fire comes, when things begin to heat up, it exposes what we love the most, what we cling the most to what we trust in the most. Is it God? Is it something else? Now let's say you're 34 years old and you lose your job and you loved your job. Previously, when everything was going well, uh, you didn't know, you didn't understand completely how much your career meant to you. You didn't understand how you had tied your significance and your identity uh, to your job. And now, four weeks later, you're starting to come unhinged. Uh, You're really down. You're feeling low. Uh, You're full of self-doubt. You see, because what the trial is exposing is your career had become your God. And it's the heat that does that. The same is true if you have a really sick child. Or your boyfriend says, come on, sleep with me. Or your friends say, hey, come on, let's try these drugs. It's the heat. The word test in verse 12 can also be translated prove. The heat proves what we are clinging to what we are really living for, what and who our God is. And all of us, even atheists, have gods or goddesses, things that are the ultimate reality, things that we base our life on. Someone, uh, now, now listen to this. I think this is really cool. It's not unique with me. Somebody I respect once said this. When you hear someone say life is meaningless, it's usually because what they place their functional trust in has died. A parent, a spouse, a job, a 
friend, a dream. Peter, conversely, is saying, if God is the object of your trust, uh, you will never face meaningless times. Even if you're sick. Even if you have failed miserably, you've really blown it. Because Jesus Christ will never abandon you. But if your God is your appearance or your brains, or your travel or your child's success, or your performance, you are just one trial away from meaninglessness and heartache. When Rhonda and I lost our spouses after 27, 25 years of marriage, it was our trust in God alone that enabled us to get up in the morning and to face the furnace of reality. So what Peter is telling us by the metaphor is that trials expose our impurities. They, they expose the inadequacies of what we trust in. Now let's flip it and let's go to the second application and let me talk about something that's more positive, positive consequence or result of trials. And that is uh, trials, Peter is telling us, grow us. Uh, they teach us to trust God. Uh, they, they prove us. They, they deepen us. This is James uh, chapter 1. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, perseverance. He goes on to talk about, talks about maturity and completeness. Now, this is hard for us because often we experience something that is seemingly Meaningless. And it comes out of nowhere. An accident. A tragedy. A a death. a, 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 A loss. And the question we immediately ask ourselves is, why is this happening to me? Now we don't necessarily realize it at the time, but that question is a subtle form of protest. It's a question of protest. It's a question my 12-year-old son asked me when he he said to me, with all sincerity, Dad, why is it that my mom has to die and none of my friends' moms? Why is this happening to me? This is the question that Job asked God in the famous Old Testament book of Job. Why, God, why is this happening to me? Job's ten children had all died, all of his children. Job had lost all of his wealth. Uh, Job was experiencing physical suffering and and pain. I mean, his life had become a wipeout overnight. Why, God, why in the world is this happening to me? And what's so curious in the book of Job and what's so important is that never once does God answer Job's question of why. Instead, God reveals himself to Job and leads Job 
to a place where he trusts God simply because he is God. Now the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament calls that faith. And honestly, it's what saved my life. Because I couldn't get any answers to my why questions. Why did this happen to me and my family? Uh, why is the, the um, you know why has cancer struck our family? Why has it struck our family again? But I could trust God simply because He is God, and I did. Now, in these moments when the heat ratchets up. And it's really difficult, it's really painful. There's something that rises up inside us and we want to deny God. And I want to say to you, be very, very careful in that moment and understand what you are going through, what God is taking you through is exactly what we as parents do with our children. Uh, We take them to places as they're growing up that they don't necessarily want to go, but places that ensure their health. Places that enable them to develop skills. Uh, They want to go do certain things and we say no. We say absolutely not. Why do we do that as parents? Because we want to see our children move into uh, healthy, highly functioning adulthood. We want to see them be highly functioning adults. So one of the things Peter is saying by implication, is God is the ultimate parent. And he will take you places, he will do things in your life, and you're going to say, just like a teenager says, this is stupid. What a waste. But God is the ultimate parent. You know, if God were small enough to be understood... He would not be big enough to be trusted. He just wouldn't. So what are, what's the nature of trials? What are trials about? Well, trials expose us and trials grow us. There's a negative and a positive, if you will. Now the question we've got to move on to is, okay, so what does Christianity teach about how we should respond to our sorrows? To our adversities. Well first. And I I actually read these. When I was recovering from my cancer surgery. um, About four weeks after um, my operation. And the very first thing we see in verse 12. Is that Peter says. Do not be surprised. I mean let's read the verse. Put it up on the screen. Dear friends. Do not be surprised, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though some strange thing were happening. Now Jane and Liz do not know each other, but they both went through similar divorces. Jane, however, became bitter towards God. Liz, on the other hand, moved closer to God. Why? What was the difference? Well, Jane was surprised. I didn't sign up for this. Her her paradigm for living was life ought to be easy. Life ought to be comfortable. 
I have to have a husband to be significant, to have, have, have uh, security. And suddenly what happened is her divorce exposed that her financial security, uh, her, her need for a man, her um, uh, desire at all times to be comfortable and, and, and to live the good life, all of those were her gods, not the God of the Bible. I mean, we see this all around us. Uh, Stop and think about what's going on in the West. By the West, I mean the U.S. and and Europe. As we move increasingly away from God, what are we seeing? Well, we're seeing alcohol abuse and drug abuse skyrocketing. Anxiety, uh, depression, uh, disorders of this, disorders of that. Racism and hatred. Because we're surprised. We think in the West, life ought to be good at all times. Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't consider your suffering strange. Now, when he says that, he's not saying, be happy about your pain. He's not saying that. We need to understand that. But he is saying, take heart. Because Jesus Christ, was, who was fully God, suffered enormously. And this is verse 13. You're participating in the sufferings of Christ. What does that mean? Well, Jesus was rejected. Jesus was tortured. Jesus was widely hated. Then crucified. You're going through what Jesus went through. This is why Peter says here, he says in verse 14, man, when you're insulted, when you're hammered on because of your stand for Christ, like I was in in, in college, what do you mean you're a Christian? Are you that naive? This is what Peter's readers were experiencing. Or whatever the source of your suffering is, What Peter is saying, be encouraged because you are in the same pattern as Jesus Christ. You're headed down the same road. You're participating in his sufferings. The Japanese eat less fat. And they have fewer heart attacks than the British and Americans. The French, however, eat a lot of fatty food. But they also have fewer heart attacks than the British and the Americans. The Kenyans drink very little red wine. And they also have fewer heart attacks than the British and the Americans. But conversely, the Italians drink a lot more red wine. But they also have fewer heart attacks than the British and the Americans. So the conclusion is eat and drink whatever you want. It's speaking English that kills you. (laughs) Now hear me. Peter is saying it's not experiencing grief. It's being surprised that kills you. It embitters you, it angers you. No thanks, God. 
And it can destroy you. I, I, I mean, think of Jesus' life. Jesus spent his ministry often weeping, 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 grieving. He was acquainted with sorrow. Uh, for you to think that you can so order your life to eradicate pain is what sinks you. Not grief, not sorrow. So second, in terms of how we respond, what the Christianity has to say about our response is found in verse 19. Uh, commit yourself to God and do good. Let's read verse 19 again. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Now I want to focus on the commitment piece. A commitment, the word commitment here means to make a deposit like putting money in the bank. It means you turn over something that is important to you to someone else who can better take care of it. Safeguard it. Interestingly, this is exactly the word Jesus uses on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm dying. The agony, is, the pain is excruciating. But I'm trusting you, God, I'm committing myself to you. I'm depositing my death, resurrection, and future into your hands. Now let me just say parenthetically that suffering, much of suffering is often the result of an ending. Your best friend moves away and the relationship changes. You get downsized, outsized at work. Somebody hurts you and the relationship is broken. Uh, somebody rejects you. On and on and on. We all experience a variety of endings. What Jesus on the cross is saying when he uses the word commit is, God, I'm depositing my ending and my new beginning into your hands. Take care of me. And God did, and God does. There is a, uh, this is important, and, and we should ask ourselves a question, well, 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 why do I want to deposit my life into God's hands? After all, there's a lot of wisdom in other religions, and there certainly is. And the answer is, because only in Christianity do you find a God who suffers. Suffers. So when the bottom drops out of your life, you're up to your eyeballs in stress. You're not sure you can hold on right now. What Christianity affirms is that God is sovereign. And you can find rest in him. But God is also a suffering God. Jesus suffered for you. And you can find love. Compassion, empathy, mercy. Forgiveness. 
because he suffered for you. This is what makes Christianity unique among all the religions of the world. Jesus suffered socially and relationally. He was abandoned and rejected uh, by everyone. This Peter denied him three times. Not only did he suffer socially, but he also suffered physically. I mean, crucifixion, one of the world's most cruel forms of death. But worst of all, Jesus suffered spiritually. On the cross, as he was bearing the weight of our sin, he forfeited the perfect harmony that he had enjoyed with God throughout eternity. And he experienced alienation, desolation from God as he became sin. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He became sin on the cross. This is why on the cross he also cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was abandoned. He had to be. So because God is holy, Jesus had to die. But because God is love, Jesus was glad willing to die. And now you know what this means. Here we are almost 2,000 years later. It means you can uh, go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm, I'm hurting, man. I'm all alone. And you will say, I know what you mean. I get it. I've been there. Other religions say you've got to be good. Christianity says you can't be good. So Jesus Christ became good for you, living a perfect life, dying a a perfect death, all to rescue us from our self-centeredness, our spiritual apathy, our our brokenness, our dysfunction, our hate, our, our, our sin. So if you've never done so, I want to, it's my privilege to invite you to come to Jesus, just as I did when I was 19. Come to him. Trust him as your savior. And the moment you do, he will heal your heart, completely forgive you, accept you, and never let you go. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at what you have done for us in Jesus. We exalt you, we honor you, we worship you. And we ask that you would open our eyes that we might see him. Amen. Amen, sir.